From the campuses of East Tennessee State University in Johnson City, Tennessee, and Emory and Henry College in Emory, Virginia, this is Religion for Life. I'm John Schuck. I'm the minister of the First Presbyterian Church of Elizabethton, Tennessee. Our website is fpcelizabethton.org. Religion for Life explores the intersection of religion, social justice, and public life, and a heavily trafficked intersection it is. My guest is Chris Stedman. He's the assistant humanist chaplain at Harvard University, and he's the author of Faithiest, How an Atheist Found Common Ground with the Religious. That came out in 2012, and he's with me via Skype from his office at uh, Harvard University. Uh, Welcome, Chris, to Religion for Life. Thank you so much for having me on. Tell us a little bit about yourself and and the work you do as a humanist chaplain. Sure. Well, I'm one of uh, nearly 40 chaplains serving Harvard University, which is uh, <laughs> it's quite a large number. And we have um, people who work uh, within the Harvard chaplains from a variety of different traditions and worldviews. Um, we've got everything from a couple of humanist chaplains to a Zoroastrian chaplain, um, a Swedenborgian chaplain, and and uh, many others. And it's really um, a great joy to serve as a member of such a diverse body. And my work as a chaplain uh, sort of uh, falls under three different kinds of um, of tasks. The first is I do uh, pastoral care and counseling. So my work tends to fall under one of three different uh, categories. The first is I do pastoral care and counseling. So I meet one-on-one with students and talk about um, really whatever is on their mind. Uh, Typically, it's a lot of existential questions or um, meaning of life issues, or they may be dealing with some kind of crisis in their life. Um, So that's sort of uh, one-third of what I spend my time on. The second is that... Um, I do a lot of programmatic work, so I help plan um, speakers that come in, uh, panels, discussion groups. Basically, um, I work with students to come up with activities and events that provide opportunities for them to be reflective, to think more deeply about their worldview, about their ethical commitments, about their, um, for, their formation as a moral agent. And then the third piece of what I do is this interfaith piece where Um, I work alongside other chaplains. I um, make sure to advocate for atheist, agnostic, and non-religious students um, at large. I help plan interfaith programs uh, at the university level for students of different religious backgrounds to come together, try to better understand one another, identify areas of shared concern, and work together toward the common good, Uh, which means that we at least once a month have... um, a service project or a social justice uh, initiative that is interfaith in nature. And so that's, um, that's a lot of what my work looks like in the day-to-day at Harvard. Um, but I also work um, part-time with a burgeoning humanist student group and community at Yale University. Um, so I, I sort of split my time between Harvard and Yale. And um, my uh, sort of night job, I guess, is that I do a lot of writing and public speaking, particularly around um, the intersection of atheist identity and interfaith dialogue. And speaking of writing, your book, uh, Faithiest, um, How an Atheist Found Common Ground with the Religious, is an autobiography. It's, it's your story. How did you come up with, uh, with this title? I, I, as I understand uh, from reading your book, it's a, it was kind of a derogatory term that you turned into <laughs> a, a positive. Is that right? Right, yeah, it's um, 
I first encountered the word faithiest a number of years ago. Um, it's one of several words that are used by um, some atheists to describe other atheists who are perceived as being um, overly accommodating of religion. Um, it, another word that's frequently used is accommodationist. And, um, you know, I, I was called a faithiest because I am an atheist who is committed to interfaith dialogue, to finding or, or towards the pursuit of common ground um, with those who do not share in my worldview. Um, but, you know, to me, being a faithiest means that I prioritize the pursuit of common ground. I see this as a positive thing. Um, and, and, you know, I, I am an atheist, but I, I have faith or I put faith in the idea that religious believers and atheists can, can find common ground, that we can and should focus on areas of agreement and, and try to work in broad coalitions to advance social justice. Um, and, you know, sometimes the word faithiest is used uh, derisively to suggest that, um, you know, those who those who do wish to pursue common ground, those who are interested in this kind of dialogue, um, don't care about truth or, um, you know, that we think that everybody should just play nice and pretend like the differences aren't there or that they're not real or that atheists shouldn't critique harmful beliefs. But in my mind, that actually couldn't be further from the truth. I think that um, interfaith dialogues are uh, perhaps one of the best spaces for us to talk about these differences, for us to be really honest about where we disagree, and, and you know, for us to address things that we see as, as harming people. Um, but I do think that um, what this requires is um, some intellectual humility and, uh, and a desire to be responsible and, and accurate and fair and specific when offering religious criticism. Um, and, and I think that that kind of criticism is most fruitful when it's offered in the context of a relationship with someone who, um, who is a member of that community. And you talk about uh, the importance of being able to tell one's story rather than to get right into philosophical arguments. And, 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 and that's what, of course, you do with your, your autobiography, Faithiest. And uh, let's talk a little bit about your, your early experience, if you would. Uh, your early childhood was not religious, but you write about your grandmother, who was in many respects. And yet um, she also kind of, as I read it, kind of modeled this idea for you of um, learning other people's stories. Uh, is that, tell us a little bit what you learned from your grandmother. Well, as you mentioned, I did not grow up religious. Um, I grew up in a household that I, you know, was not atheistic. I didn't hear the word atheist as a child, um, surely, but it was irreligious more than anything. Um, I never heard the word God really in my household. But the thing about my grandmother that really sticks with me is that um, she was a person who was not afraid to speak her mind. It was not afraid to um, call out injustice where she saw it. Um, she was incredibly forward thinking. She introduced a curriculum on sexuality um, in her church at, at a time when people weren't really talking about that. It was a program for young adults and I'm sure that it caused many people in the church to blush. But she did it in a way, I mean, she was clearly successful. She got the church to allow her to teach this curriculum. And I think it was because she was a person that built relationships. She was a person who got to know people and introduced her ideas in, the con in that context. And, you know, it's, it's funny. When I started writing Faithiest, I went home um, to, to visit my family and to talk with my mother about my childhood. 
And we were talking about my um, grandmother and, and what a sort of influential figure she had been on all of us, even though, um, you know, I, I can't remember actually um, being with her very much because she died when I was so young. And I learned something that I hadn't known before, um, which was that she dedicated um, her final years. She died of cancer and she dedicated her final years to um, two causes that I care very deeply about, and that is interfaith work and um, LGBTQ activism. And, you know, in fact, I learned something that I had no idea about, which was that she was a founding member of Minnesota's AIDS Interfaith Council of the Twin Cities, um, Minnesota being where I grew up. And, um, and apparently she even hinted to my mother when I was very young that she thought that I might be gay. <laughs> and uh, she was very into astrology, and she said that my astrology chart said that I, my life would rotate around religion. And, you know, I don't, I don't really give astrology much credence myself personally, but I think that, you know, were she still alive today, she would be very pleased that her predictions panned out. <laughs> <laughs> you know, there were many things about your book uh, that made me feel good. Uh, um, I, I, you write in your book about uh, joining an evangelical church and at the same time uh, discovering uh, your own sexuality. And but one of the things that made me feel good was the the minister your mom introduced you to when she learned uh, that you were gay. Both your mom and and the minister he took a, a red X to your teen Bible. Uh, can, can you tell uh, that story? Yeah, well, I had this teen study Bible that I had picked up at church that was full of all this sidebar commentary that was not um, that was just very extreme that said that. Um, AIDS was a divine punishment um, for homosexuality uh, that suggested that homosexuality was at best, um, a, you know, a wayward, re youthful rebellion or confusion or at worst, a sign of demonic possession. I mean, it was full of all these messages that really terrified me and that, um, as I've come to learn later in life, really are not biblical, are not consistent with um, with. Uh, reasonable interpretations of the Christian scriptures and what they say about homosexuality. And, you know, they, um, these were messages that I really deeply internalized that filled me with self-loathing and, um, and fear. And um, they had, you know, when I became a Christian, when I was young, um, when I was around 11 years old, it was because I was looking for a community and, and specifically a community that cared about justice and that cared about um, helping people live meaningful lives and, and helping everyone have access to that. So the grand irony of my conversion is that what, what brought me into Christianity was this desire for community and justice. But because of materials like this teen study Bible and many others that I encountered, as well as things that I heard preached and things that I heard discussed in small groups, um, I actually really retreated within myself and isolated myself off from the rest of the community and, and became really um, fixated on um, these anti-LGBT messages. And so this teen study Bible was really sort of emblematic. It was representative of all of that. And when my mother found out what I was struggling with after finding a prayer journal that I was keeping, she took me to, she called up another church in the community and took me to speak with this minister um, who told me that, um, you know, that there are many different ways in which people interpret um, the Bible when it comes to homosexuality, that, and that, you know, this message that I had been receiving from this study Bible and from other um, sources was really dehumanizing and, and, and in his eyes was not consistent with um, 
even the most uh, sort of fundamentalist or conservative read of, of scripture. And so he just took a, as you say, he took a, a red um, pen or red marker and just put big X's over it, which was a hugely symbolic moment for me. Um, it was the first time someone in a position of, of uh, Christian authority, uh, in my eyes anyway, had uh, told me that uh, this was not consistent with his vision of Christianity. And he, that, that moment really propelled me into more progressive Christian spaces where I ultimately ended up finding that community that I was looking for and, and a place of welcoming and a place um, that really cared about justice during a time when I really needed it, during a time when I was coming out um, in, uh, as queer in high school and, and being the only openly queer person in my high school. Um, and, and having a lot of difficulties around that, you know, I found that the church was actually my safe haven. And it was largely because of this minister that I, I found that. And my mother, of course. If you're just joining us on Religion for Life, my guest is Chris Stedman. He's the author of Faithiest, How an Atheist Found Common Ground uh, with the Religious. Now, I found in some cases people leave Christianity because of um, bad behavior, anti-gay attitudes, for example, as, as, as you have experienced, and then examine the faith and find uh, it just isn't credible for them. Um, is that somewhat your story? How did you decide uh, to let go of a personal God, become an atheist? Yeah, I try to be very careful in Faithiest and in my work in general um, to make it clear that I did not leave Christianity because some people were mean to me. Uh-huh. <laughs> or I didn't. I didn't leave Christianity because of um, you know anti-LGBT uh, ideas or messages. Um, you know, for me, it was really a, a result of um, of a lot of reflection, a lot of study. Um, so I, you know, I, I had, as I was saying, these really positive experiences in the church in high school. Um, and because of those experiences, I actually thought that perhaps I might go into the ministry because I had found this community that really um, helped me through a difficult period. And, you know, I wanted to help other people who struggled in life. And that was something that I really cared deeply about and still do. And, um, the people I knew who were committed to that work were ministers. But when I went to, I went to a a Lutheran college to study religion. But when I was there, my Christian professors really um, challenged me to think deeply about what it was that I believed and why, and to investigate the origins of my entry into Christianity. And it was through this process that I came to realize that what had uh, brought me into Christianity was this desire for community and, and specifically for a moral community com- committed to a set of uh, values and principles um, and not the metaphysical truth claims of Christianity, which had really never sat quite as comfortably with me. Um, the idea of God had always felt um, like a concept, like this kind of distant thing. And I had really tried to uh, commit to it because everyone that was in this community was saying God was the source of these things that I cared about, the community and the, the justice. And, and yet I eventually came to realize for me that those, um, those interests, those commitments had preceded my participation in the church, had preceded my belief in God. And so I began to study religion with a, a very critical eye and eventually came to realize that I didn't believe. But that was a really hard thing for me to um, accept, and it was a hard thing for me to, it was an even harder thing for me to articulate publicly, uh, in large part because I didn't see any atheists who I felt like, um, you know, cared about the same kinds of things that I did, who reflected my, um, my values. And this is why I think, you know, storytelling is so important, because 
a fundamentally um, vital part of my coming out and my being able to accept my sexual orientation was meeting people or hearing the stories of people who um, I could identify with who were LGBT. And I just wasn't seeing that in terms of atheist, uh, atheism. And I didn't know any atheists. And so it just felt like something I kind of had to go alone. And that's a big part of why I um, do the work that I do now as a chaplain, because I think it's so important for young people, for students to have access to people that they can talk to about these things, um, to have access to a community of common belief. And, and that's, that's why I'm a big part of why I'm passionate about that. So, you know, you also mentioned that um, you have observed that a lot of people have or a lot of people leave Christianity because of anti-gay views or bad behavior. You know, it's really interesting. There was this um, this uh, Public Religion Research Institute released this study recently um, about uh, that that actually touched on this. And one of their findings was that um, about one third, I believe, of um, American millennials who've left their childhood religion did so at least in part because of anti-LGBT rhetoric or teachings. But what's really interesting is I think one of the big elements here is that um, the perception of these religious institutions doesn't match the reality. Um, for, for example, one of their findings was around 75% of Catholics think that other Catholics disagree with same-sex marriage or don't support same-sex marriage. But they also report reported that uh, Catholics are actually more supportive of legal recognitions for same-sex relationships than Americans overall, that Catholics support hmm. all rights for gays and lesbians at a higher rate than among the general public, and around 75% of Catholics think same-sex relationships should be accepted by society. And so I think there's this disconnect between what people hear about their traditions or what people in leadership positions say and what the actual beliefs are on the ground. And, and sure enough, um, one other thing that the Public Religion Research Institute found is that people who attend church regularly, at least once or twice a month, particularly those who belong to a religious community that's support, largely supportive of same-sex marriage, these folks are likely to overestimate opposition to same-sex marriage in their church communities by um, 20 percentage points or more. That's a really big uh, difference. And so I think one of the, you know, we... There's been a lot of talk over the last couple of years about the religious nuns, about the, the unaffiliated people mm -hmm. who are leaving um, traditional religion, institutional religion, which is now about one in three people under the age of 30 are religiously unaffiliated. Um, and yet we still find among those folks a large percentage, about 70 percent, who claim to believe in a God or a universal spirit. And so I think a lot of folks are leaving because they perceive um, these religious institutions to be out of step with their values or, or, or too um, caught up in money and politics. That's not another finding. A lot of religious millennials perceive religious institutions as being um, overly political or overly um, concerned with money. And, yeah, I think that that is, you know, we, there actually really hasn't been a huge growth of people who identify as atheists. Um, it's it's these a lot of people who are just leaving institutional religion. And so I think you're absolutely right that, um, you know, there are a lot of people who are leaving religious communities for this reason um, or these reasons. And I think that this is a real call to religious communities to, um, you know, realize that this perception is there and it needs to be addressed. You know, the heart of your work is reconciling atheists and religious people. Um, 
which kind of leads up in what we've just been talking about. Tell us about the problem. Uh, what, what is this divide? Well, I think the problem is that we live in a world that is, um, you know, a conflict oriented. Uh, the media mm -hmm. um, tells stories of conflict and not stories of cooperation. Our history is a history of violence, a history of conflict. And it's because the, the events that are recorded are, are conflicts. A period of peace is not an event. Um, and similarly, the Westboro Baptist Church, a group of less than 100 people, can make headlines around the world with a single tweet. And yet, in the last week, there was a gun violence prevention event happening in churches all around the country that uh, was barely covered at all. As a result, we see people um, talking past one another, shouting at one another, and that, uh, that informs our understanding of what, uh, what dialogue across lines of difference looks, look like. And so part of why I am so passionate about promoting a different kind of conversation is that I think it's, it's truly countercultural and it requires us to make an effort because it's not just going to happen. What, what ultimately ends up happening is the stories that we hear are the stories um, that make us angry, the stories that, uh, you know, that, that are stories of, of um, that suggest that we have irreconcilable differences. And so uh, what that requires is, you know, how we respond to that is that people in diverse communities need to come together and, and get to know one another on an individual level to see past um, the narrative that suggests that we, um, that religious difference necessarily leads to conflict. One thing that I talk about in Faithiest is research that was done in India around uh, Hindu and Muslim communities in close geographic proximity. And um, there's this great book on it that found that, uh, by Shutosh Barshani, um, that found that in areas where Hindus and Muslims lived alongside one another, um, where, uh, where they didn't have to make any kind of effort to build bridges across lines of religious difference, where um, they were able to sort of just exist in their own little communities and not talk to one another. Um, in those areas, when an inciting incident occurred between these communities, it led to extensive inter-identity violence. But in communities where they had to work together for some reason, um, perhaps there was like a, a natural disaster or something like that. In those communities where they had to um, reach out to one another, work together toward a common goal and build relationships in the process, when an inciting incident occurred, um, it was far less likely to lead to any kind of violence. And so the fact of the matter is religious difference is not the end-all be-all. It does not mean that, um, you know, if, if you and I are of a different faith, we, we, um, our differences are so great that it is a, a chasm too, too vast to bridge. It just means that we have to actually make an effort. We can't just um, automatically assume that we're going to know what our um, shared values are. We have to make an intentional effort to get to know one another and uncover those. My guest on Religion for Life is Chris Stedman. He's the assistant humanist chaplain at Harvard University and the author of Faithiest, How an Atheist Found Common Ground with the Religious. And, you know, even the questions, even the, the labels uh, are confusing to me. Um, uh, from a philosophical point of view, I guess I am a post-theist or a non-theist or atheist. I think gods are human constructions. Yet, on the other hand, I, I find value in the constructions. I'm religious and atheist. <laughs> Do you find folks <laughs> that just mess up uh, labels? Well, I think we're living in an age of religious fluidity, and I think we will see um, people, I think we're coming to a place where we can, where people are becoming more comfortable with, um, 
with, you know, not needing to fit into a particular box um, or, you know, being able to occupy multiple spaces. I think we see this um, in, you know, what I was talking about earlier, the, the, the fact that so many people are uh, disaffiliating from institutional religion but aren't necessarily atheist. Um, mm -hmm. I think the fact of the matter is we live in a time where people are much more free to leave religion, change religion, um, be religiously hybrid and and sort of pull from different traditions. And, you know, I think that's a good thing as long as we are still in conversation with one another. And if anything, I, I, I think it can actually contribute to that dialogue. But I think, you know, a lot of people who study religion, um, this is a very fascinating time. And I think it, it's an opportunity for us to um, realize that, and this is something that interfaith dialogue is, um, you know, has struggled with in the past, but I think is really improving on, is that people aren't necessarily always going to fit into a particular box, and we need to um, make space for people to identify in a way that feels authentic to them. And you encourage uh, those who identify as atheist or agnostic to engage in interfaith dialogue. That's right. Yeah, I think that, that the humanizing effect of interfaith dialogue is very valuable to atheists because we are um, a community that is really greatly misunderstood. Um, mm -hmm. There have been a number of studies that have demonstrated that atheists are widely distrusted, are seen as outsiders, are seen as um, suspicious. And, and you know, the, the goal of interfaith dialogue is to take people in diverse communities and humanize them to one another to to help them come to see one another as perhaps more alike than different. And so I think it's really an ideal forum for atheists to address um, the very real uh, stigma that exists against atheism here in the United States. Uh, we're just about running out of time, Chris, um, but what have been some, what some are some projects uh, that you're working on now? Well, one of the things that we do with our community um, here at Harvard is that we have these regular meal packing events where we uh, work with other religious communities and, and with people who are non-religious to raise funds for and package meals for food insecure children in Massachusetts. And um, over the last couple of years, we have uh, raised the money for and packaged over 150,000 meals for food insecure children. And one of the reasons why we um, do these projects in this way is because not only is this a cause that all of our communities care about and think is really important, but we are able to have a bigger impact because we work together. And in, uh, by working together on this project, we've come to really understand each other better and, and develop an appreciation for our differences. And, you know, I, uh, I, as an atheist, I think that this kind of work is so important because... Um, I believe, uh, you know, as a, a non-theist, that there are no, um, there are probably not any divine or supernatural forces who are going to intervene in human affairs and solve our problems for us. And thus, it's up to us as human beings to do that work. And that requires working with other communities because no single community can address the problem of systemic hunger among children in the United States alone. It's it's a it's an issue so large that it requires that we find ways to acknowledge our differences and not uh, pretend that they're not there, but also to say that, you know, our shared concern for this issue is more important than our disagreement about whether or not God exists. 
My guest has been Chris Stedman. He's the assistant humanist chaplain at Harvard University and the author of a book I encourage you to pick up, Faithiest, How an Atheist Found Common Ground with the Religious. His website is faithiestbook.com. Chris, thank you for your work, and thank you for spending time with me today on Religion for Life. Thank you so much. It was my pleasure. We are the youth of the First Presbyterian Church of Elizabeth in Tennessee. You have been listening to Religion for Life. Your host is John Shook. He's our minister. Our website is fpcelizabethan.org. Come visit us. You can find more information about this program and links to podcasts at religionforlife.com. Follow Religion for Life on Twitter. Like us on Facebook. Listen to us on iTunes. Religion for Life is co-produced by WETSFM, Johnson City, Tennessee, and WEHCFM, Emory, Virginia. Be well!